0: You're listening to 4 at the Back with Joe, Pete, Maz and Neil. From the playboys and provocateurs to tiki-taka to Gagan pressing, we'll be looking at some of our favourite cult sides and players from down the years. Shaky on the facts but heady with nostalgia, this is the football podcast you've been waiting for. So finish up your pre-match stretches and go with 4 at the Back.
1: 210 national teams ranked by FIFA. Over the next two episodes, we're going to give the supporters of 209 of those teams a bit of a laugh. We're going to do England. A story of the England national team during the time that we've all been watching football religiously. To be honest, if Shakespeare wrote it, it would have been more tragedy than comedy. There were glorious failures and oh so nears, as a famous song once put it. But it also ended with a, a golden generation of wonderful footballers who all... On the international stage, at least, which is what we cared about for the most part, singularly failed to shine with any consistency. Now, we often remind people on the show that Maz and Neil have a few extra years on me and Joe. But to keep this to a two part special rather than spiraling into three and four parts, we're going to have to start it off really with the time that the four of us were all following England. So that means that the failure to qualify for the 1994 World Cup and the reign of Graham Taylor, these are all things that are in the past. Terry Venables became the England manager in January of 1994, with the contract I'd said taken up until the end of Euro '96. At the time, the shortlist was between Venables, Howard Wilkinson, and Jerry Francis, and it was Jimmy Armfield, the you know legendary footballer, member of the 1966 World Cup winning side, that actually made the final decision to appoint Venables. So, uh, Neil, with it being Terry Venables, you seem like the perfect person to come to first. Take us back to when Terry Venables gets the job and what it was like to see. To see Venables in that role and just where England were.
0: I mean, it's very interesting time actually that that pre Euro '96 because obviously the the Taylor era ended in the most ignominious fashion, it, you know possible. Uh, Venables had obviously been um, at Barcelona um, and he'd he'd obviously done a very good job at Spurs. You know, FA Cup winning in 1991 being obviously the the highlight. Um, played very, very attractive football, was probably one of the most forward-thinking managers around, um, you know, probably one of the few English coaches of the time that wasn't wedded to a 4-4-2. Um, and actually, that got him a lot of criticism in the press in the early days of his England tenure, um, because England had this very weird two years of friendlies where they just played friendly after friendly after friendly, because back then, uh, the hosts... Um, you know, obviously qualified automatically. Actually, they still do, don't they? It's the winners don't qualify automatically anymore. Um, so England didn't have any competitive fixtures. They only had friendlies. And he had two years to get a team together, basically. Um, and obviously, there are a few players from the sort of 1990 kind of vintage that had come to the end under Taylor. Um, so it was starting with a pretty blank canvas, um, but he... Uh, experienced a lot with a a kind of one striker formation Um, you know he had the misfortune to actually lose Alan Shearer for a large part of of that preparation when he had his serious knee injury in the middle of his pomp and various England sort of um, strikers kind of played in that in that kind of uh, Christmas tree formation I guess you know in, in modern terms it's it's kind of getting somewhere near what was become a um, a 4-2-3-1 or a, or a 4-3-2-1, you know, they didn't play England a 4-4-2, and, and the, the journalists of the time were really angry about it, and I just remember, like, after every England game or every sort of, you know, highlights package on BBC, they would be going on and on about how England needed to play 4-4-2 and get the crosses in, and, and Venables, to his credit, stuck to his guns, and it's really interesting watching back the United Six footage earlier on, because it was very clear that England were playing a, you know, they were basically playing teams like um, Holland and Spain at their own game and playing a very consciously continental style of football. Um, So he was very much the right man for the job, I think. And, you know, looking ahead to when Hoddle takes over, it was a very seamless transition because they both were cut from the same cloth, really. Um, So a very good appointment and a very progressive appointment, I would say.
2: It was a very stinky Spursy cloth, uh, which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I always, uh, you know, you, you had to support England and, you know, where where our starting point here is for Euro 96, you really couldn't not uh, get caught up in, in the whole fever that was uh, taking over the country at the time. However, you know, my view on international football is always... You know, 1990 was a bit too. You know, I was there. I watched Italia '90. You know, I have memories of it. But you know, I was still quite young at that stage. At, at 10, you're not you're not fully there as a football fan. By 14, uh, you know, USA '94. That was the first tournament I actually fully, you know, dove into, and like really sunk my teeth into the whole thing and you know England weren't there and at that stage it was very much a case of club over country it always has been it always will be you know don't get me wrong it'll always be club over country for for me uh, as much as I dislike my my club as well these days but um you know Arsenal was never very you know hand in hand with England England was always a lot more spurs a lot more other teams you know and yeah we, we we had a couple of players here and there in you know we almost normally we usually had one or two in in most squads that, that went f- forward so um yeah it just kind of I just got kind of used to the fact you know Spurs managers white shirts uh got to support them but it's not that easy but you know it, it, it was an interesting time and there were a lot of a lot of players I really liked in this in this England uh, team, you know, maybe not uh, the superstar level as the ones we'd find at the end of what we're looking at right now, but uh, a lot of very very good players in that team, and you know, it it, it was exciting. And as as the fever swept the country, and you know, we, we we had it at home, you know, everything was at good times for us to watch. It it it, it really did it really did get you really did
0: grip you even if it was all bloody blackburn and spurs some of 96 was our gcc maths as well so uh yeah exactly. so, so, so we had the whole summer off to watch it that as well. long long summer <laughs> oh,
2: but what a summer i think
0: it's interesting what you say about the spurs thing though because it is true that like one of the things that my group of friends that when i was you know 16 and, and and you know watching it all around people's houses and all the rest of it is that you know uh, non-Spurs supporting friends were very anti Teddy Sheringham very anti Darren Anderton you know they were definitely seen as Venables as um you know favoured boys even though he hadn't managed either of them actually they both came to Spurs after Venables had left um, but um it, it was certainly the case that that people felt that way Gascoigne, of course was was managed by Venables um but you know I mean from your side of things Maz you know obviously Adams and Seaman were were really, really key players in that in that team. And Seaman probably has his best tournament as an England goalkeeper, I would say. And uh, uh, David Platt was uh, your club captain, uh, the England captain as
1: well. He obviously is at Arsenal by this point. That's true.
2: Yeah, I guess he is, isn't he? Yeah, um,
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's there. And going
2: back, I, I've always hated Teddy Sheridan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, but... Also, when when you've got a, a pairing up front, I do recognise that, you know, alongside the number nine, Sheridan was always the best option at that particular time. You know, it, it was, you know, i, I prefer Soles every single day of the week. However, you know, when you're playing a, a, a strike partnership, you know, Shearer and Sheridan make sense. Uh, and and I, I just thought it was a brilliant player. It's one of those first players that I've always. Really got on well with, and just thought was an excellent player, and yeah, there's absolutely no nothing on my side that said Sheridan shouldn't have, uh, that said Anderson and shouldn't have been on, in in that starting starting lineup, uh, unless he was injured, which probably was.
1: <laughs> he usually was. It's I funny. Sorry, I'm just gonna say it's funny you mentioned Sir Les there because that was always the thing you did on computer games back then was sub out Sheringham for Les Ferdinand because computer games weren't clever enough back then to pick up what Sheringham gave the side, so that he was always better on those games. But in reality, Venable seemed to know what he was doing.
3: I mean, it's weird because I mean there was there was a lot of um, there's a lot of pressure on Venable's not to play Shearer. Uh, because he basically he'd gone two years without an international goal like 12 international matches without a goal obviously they'd not played any competitive fixtures and then Ferdinand had just come off the season of his life um, at Newcastle where they'd nearly won the title Um, and you also have players like you know Fowler was tearing up trees at Liverpool and um, Ian Wright was, was scoring goals for fun at Arsenal and you know, even Collymore was for a little while reckoned to be in with a, with the show. Um, so yeah, as a as a ten year old Newcastle fan at the time, it seemed very strange to me that um, that Sir Les wasn't wasn't picked. Um, certainly to certainly, to, I don't think he, I don't think he played a minute in the tournament. Actually, he, he made the squad, but I don't think he played a minute in the tournament. Um,
0: it was, it was a great time for English goal scorers, though, wasn't it? Mm-mm. We didn't, it was, we didn't it know was, it at the time, did we? <laughs> it was very. It was, it's funny because Ian Wright and Andy Cole both had wretched England careers, really. Like when you when you kind of look at it. Um, how, many, Rob, how many caps Robbie, did Cole have? It's only oh, like two, isn't it? Well, no, he had he has a few, but I think it was. The, but he 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 took him a load of caps to get his first goal, I think. Uh, um okay. And you know, Ian Wright obviously never replicated his, his Arsenal form in an England shirt I think probably Robbie Fowler can consider himself a little bit unlucky to have not got more game time in that kind of you know 95 96 era when he was you know at his peak um I mean at a, a very young peak at that but I mean, it was robbed by injury wasn't he absolutely but this I'm is pre-injury Fowler supposed, Fowler
3: as well and and sandwiched between Shearer and Owen yeah <laughs> He didn't really yeah. stand much of a chance. I mean, there, there, there were
2: a lot of options, weren't there? You know, if you were carrying mm-hmm. a little knock, you know, unless yeah. you were Shearer, you were going to be, well, we, we got other options. Like you say, that, there's, that's a lot of talent. If We just named there, you know, a lot of them may not have had a very long peak, but at their peak, you know, Collymore, Fowler, Wright, Ferdinand, Shearer, Sheridan, Walton, you know, which is probably where, yeah, which is probably where the Sheringham, you know the anti sherringham Brigade probably jumped in but you know they were all number nines you know all yeah, of them.
0: yeah and bear in mind that Sherringham at Spurs has an incredible goal scoring record you know he was the top scorer in the first year of the Premier League and, um, and, and played you know pretty much for Spurs as a nine actually it was really for England where he came into his own um, in that 10 role and I think what was great about that tournament for me was that it was incredibly satisfying to see those two players that were maligned by all my friends then have brilliant tournaments. <laughs> so it was like, I watched the Holland game earlier on and um, that absolute, it's probably the best England performance of my lifetime, to be honest. And to see the way that, that Shearer sharing and dovetails in that game just absolutely ripped that very cultured Dutch defense to shreds. Um, I mean, it was kind of, you just don't see England play football like that usually. <laughs> so it was, it, it was kind of an incredible kind of feel good moment. And all the more so, because, you know, the tournament started with an absolutely wretched game against Switzerland. Um, and, and then a um, a game against Scotland, which to be quite honest, they were very, very lucky uh, to score the two goals. Scotland missed a pen, you know, um, you get a kind of Neville hoofed cross for, uh, for Shearer to score a header and then, Gascoigne scores a wonder goal but other than that England weren't all that great shakes in that game and I remember at half time Venables brought on Jamie Redknapp because he needed somebody to pass the ball and control the midfield and it was that kind of tactical masterstroke that really kind of enabled England to get a grip on that game but Scotland were, were, were much the better side in the first half I mean nice. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna slow us down a sec
1: here because I've got to tie in something that Joe just said with Shearer's travails over the last year or so you know what is it two years without an England goal and the, and the Switzerland game because the way the tournament picks up from the point you've just mentioned and, and the Gaza Wonder goal is really the, uh, the the moment that lifts the whole tournament from an English perspective we've erased just how difficult it was to be the England manager building into that tournament. And, you know, Venables has a whole, uh, a honeymoon period in 1994 where they don't think they lose in any of these friendlies and a couple of draws here and there, but, but they win. But 1995, they don't win. I don't think um, there's the awful game in Dublin that gets called off after 27 minutes the when hooliganism, in- yeah. the hooliganism and that flares up and we have all this, what's going to happen next summer type hand ringing in the press They they draw at home with Uruguay. And by the end of the year, Venables already said, you know, I'm not going to be the England manager after the tournament. So he's coming into the tournament as a lame duck. We start picking up a little bit of thing when the tournament approaches. And then we have that draw against Switzerland and everything goes flat again. You know, this was not guaranteed that this was going to be this great summer. It picked
0: up as the tournament progressed. And bear in mind as well, you've also got the dentist chair instance uh, that takes place you know, on the eve of the tournament where uh, Gascoigne and Sheringham and are caught like in a nightclub, <laughs> pouring spirits down their throat, which obviously they, they famously then recreate after the, uh, after the Gascoigne wonder goal against Scotland. So it, it was very difficult. And as I say, like the, the press criticism of Venables for, for experimenting so much. And he, there's, a, there's, you know, there's a kind of little parallel with Southgate here actually, because he experimented with so many formations and so many different players um, over that period of time, you know, and the press was very traditionally England should play their best team all the time or know what their best team is. And nobody really thought Venables knew what his best team was. And then, you know, Tommy year 96, actually, he has a pretty settled 11. He does move between um, a back five with uh, with Southgate in. And sometimes a, a, a flat four with with David Platt in midfield, but you know, other than that, like it's a pretty settled side through the tournament. So, um, I mean, in that Scotland game though, he
3: start he starts Southgate in midfield, and it doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, um, and I he brings on Redknapp. That, that's the and that's the point where you you sort of recognise his sort of, I suppose, his willingness to concede that things aren't quite going to plan. Redknapp comes on, and then uh, I think Southgate gets pushed back. They go to a back three. Um, and um, you know, the rest is history. The other thing is, um, Scotland get a penalty in that game, don't they? Yeah, they, they, they,
0: in be, they miss it. it. And then they the England score like straight afterwards. Like they go right up the pitch and, and Gascoigne scores yeah. straight afterwards.
2: Or oh, how Yuri Geller? I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I forgot
0: about the Yuri Geller that, saying one of, it. One of one like, of the
1: Yuri Geller saying it was him. He claimed takes the credit every few years. What I want to know is how much time did you spend in the
3: park trying to recreate the Gascoigne goal?
0: it was always fantastic oh, like, for me the there was girl.
3: there was that but he always, he <laughs> i remember him and i I don't know why this is burned into my brain but i remember him playing a rabona pass from his, own, from, his from his own half up the field and thinking what the hell was that uh, and, like, and he, I think, he
0: was just on another planet that day i think yeah, you know, the second think, half people people i think um People that never got to watch Gascoigne in his prime, I think, have forgot. Well, just have no idea how good he really was, you know, and and I've seen people sort of talk about Grealish and and say, you know, Grealish is the closest thing we've had to Gascoigne. I think that's right, actually. But Gascoigne was just on the ball. You know, the ball was stuck to his foot like, you know, he had unbelievable close control, unbelievable body control. He wasn't necessarily quick over flat ground, but with the ball at his feet, he was absolutely rapid. Um, obviously, shoot off both feet, could play Glenn Hoddle-style 60-yard passes, um, you know, no-look passes, as you say, Joe, like, you know, ridiculous kind of flicks and touches. Um, he He was an unbelievable footballer for all of his demons. You know, he was just an incredible player. And I think... His his personal problems, as I think, for a, probably a generation of fans that come after us, have probably obscured that a little, a little bit. Uh, but he was just a, a, a wonderful footballer. A yeah, his never...
2: reputation his reputation's kind of you know preceded him at this stage. And of course, I mean, how how long did he actually play in the Premier League? Weren't much, was it? You know, well, I mean, and he, since football started, then,
0: and right yeah. at the end of his career, yeah, like um, you know, I think Everton and Middlesbrough,
2: he played, yeah. You know, and as football, you know, started with the Premier League, obviously, in this country, (laughs) you know, a lot of people haven't really seen what Gazza could do in his prime. You know, he's known for his mad antics and crying on the pitch.
3: It was around that time that I I, I remember watching quite a lot of Scottish football because of him.
0: Yeah, it was the era when it was really good. (laughs) well, Well, yeah, I mean.
3: The Rangers and Celtic had some really good players, and there were actually some decent players in, in some of the other teams as well. But he was, you know he, he, he was the, I think he was the star. He was kind of the box office yeah, attraction about the yeah. league, and and you know they've ne- they've never really replaced him. No, I mean football. Football
1: Italia starts up because they want to follow Gascoigne to Lazio, and then we start watching Rangers because he's in Scotland. Box office is exactly the right word for it. I mean, that's what he was. You had to know what Paul Gascoigne was doing.
0: He was one of them players. Yeah, I mean, he he just had that knack of doing something which was incredibly eye catching. You know, obviously he breaks his leg at, um, you know, well, sorry, does his knee in that that awful tackle in the uh, FA Cup final and he goes to Lazio injured he doesn't get obviously doesn't get to play for the first you know few months is at Lazio and then he he, when he finally gets a game he scores a he scores a vital header against Roma and does a lap of the athletics track you know in the biggest game of Lazio's season he just had that knack of doing uh, of doing kind of incredibly eye-catching stuff but I think the other thing is is that obviously he he burns out you know between 96 and 98 and had he had that one more tournament you know because obviously famously hoddle drops him for france 98 and had he gone to that tournament uh, and had one more last hurrah you know the last dance to use the michael jordan uh, parallel you know i think probably you'd look at his career i mean it was a great career anyway but you'd look at his england career maybe even a little bit differently um because he never gets to kind of follow up on this high, if you like. He he kind of, you know, people like Paul Scholes emerge, and then he's kind of done. Yeah, it sort of
1: ends with a, a very abrupt kind of finish, doesn't it? I mean, I'm yeah. going to move us on now, because otherwise we're going to spend far too much time talking about Euro '96. There's a lot to cover. So <laughs> the tournament... The tournament picks up massively with Gary McAllister's awful penalty that any of us could have saved, and then the ball goes up the other end and Gaz produces a moment of magic. But let's be honest, the next game is what it's really all about, isn't it? it uh, out of nowhere, no one expected it, and then it's England 4, the much-fancy Netherlands 1. Uh, where, just tell us, take us through what you remember of that glorious
0: night. I mean, as I say, mostly... mostly um... Thinking about all the things I was going to say to my friends after Teddy sharing him had had the game of his life. <laughs> that was mostly what I was doing, I think. But yeah, it was it was a uh, I think I was on my own in the house actually that game, and uh, just remember, you know, jumping up and down and and delighting in, in in the Teddy masterclass.
2: It was it was a surreal game of football. I mean, what you need to understand for this is just how vintage that that. That Dutch team was. We're talking about, you know, I won't necessarily say peak of these these that generation of Ajax players, but you know, a lot of them did peak pretty early, so they were still very a, a very young team. But you know, Van der Sar, Seedorf, De Burr both De Burrs, Davids, Cliver, Burkamp, you know, that is in, an insanely good team, uh, as well as you know some stalwarts in there like, um, Philip Koku, who, you know, was around that time or, or just on the verge of going to Barcelona, I guess, and being a important part of their midfield and, young know, Jan Valtas was still there. Jan Valtas. Danny um, Blind. Danny Blind, captain in the team. Um, <laughs> Jordi Cruyff. Uh, well, <laughs> there, yeah. Anyway, um, but, you know, the point is Aaron Vinter was still around at that point, you know, It it was just a team of insane talent, you know, such a good Dutch team. And we played them off the park. We we played this total football in Dutch team, you know, a team that have mainly come through that, that Ajax Academy and would play some of the best football of that era. Played them off the park, absolutely off the park. We were all over them and, you know, It it was amazing to watch. It was just one of those perfect football performances. You don't see them very often. You very rarely see them, you know, see your team play one like that. You know, it's it it really is a once in a lifetime thing. It was just, you know, jaw dropping, jaw droppingly
0: good football.
1: the direction on the header for the second England goal, I think it is, is Sheringham's, uh, was it his first? Um, Yeah. I I mean, he's just one of the best headers of all, I think I've ever seen in terms of, you know, effective heading. I mean, it's like he put it on a sixpence. It's superb, really. And then there's obviously that pass where he looks like he's going to thump it for Shearer, uh, and he just plays it off to Shearer. It's, It's just one pass. And, you know, every so often you see a pass, and it's so simple, but it's like, that's genius, that you know it it was a
0: remarkable night it really really was and 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 not only that like you know it it kind of i think it it sort of set up everybody to think that actually because obviously they play, he's playing Spain in the quarter final and Spain at that time were bigger chokers in international football even than England were and at that point you really do start to think that um you know it's realistic that, that that you have a chance of winning the home tournament. You know, as you said earlier on, Pete, the the build from that absolute stinker against Switzerland to this point, and straight after this, England became second favourites with the bookies after after Germany, like based on this performance. Um, and then you you get the quarterfinal v Spain, and they and and they play quite badly, and Spain really really should have won the game. Um, they spain have a perfectly good goal disallowed for offside um never offside in the month of sundays and they probably should have had a penalty as well um and and yet you know england then shake off the penalty hoodoo which is another huge thing uh mm. for, for from 1990 like a big big hangover and you get that great image of Stuart, the exorcism of Stuart pierce <laughs> mm. <laughs> like absolutely like going mental after he slammed the penalty home like I mean, one of again, like just like that night against Holland, like what a great moment of English football to see Stuart Pearce kind of come to terms with that absolute horror that he'd been through six years before. Yeah, I mean, how
1: important? I mean, we could spend time going through the Spain team and say, you know, we the fact they weren't fancied is is was all because they hadn't really produced too much an in international level. You go through the side, there's some great players. In yeah, there. absolutely. Uh, we, but we rather than focus on that, I just want to say how much. <laughs> The fact that we did win a penalty shootout for the first time, I think, how much did that really amp it up, even though the performance wasn't great? Because the feeling was, you know, if we're actually going to be lucky this time, that's all we've needed in the past is a little bit of luck. And now we're getting through games that we really had no right winning.
0: Think probably in terms of patriotism and everything else people kind of almost forgot the performance as soon as the penalty shootout was finished you know what I mean it almost didn't matter that they hasn't looked very good in that game um I think just that the amount that the penalty shootout win galvanized everybody um was huge and you know like it was kind of thought that you know although Germany were a very good team um, and funny enough you know the the Dortmund team that we talked about a few episodes ago you know actually they had quite a few players in that in in that Germany team um but they weren't thought to be you know the 1990 Germans you know what I mean they they, they were sort of a um a very good team but they mm-hmm. weren't an outstanding team no and I they, think they, they know, came
1: know, in as sorry just gonna say they came in as the favorites but they weren't overwhelming favorites like
0: the way that sometimes when you go to World Cup, Brazil have been at times, let's say. No, and let's not forget as well that they had lost in the final of 92 to Denmark um, when, you know, a kind of pre-Man United Peter Schmeichel had the game of his life and John Jensen scored a a dee that he'd never repeat. Um and then in the World Cup in 94, you know, they'd looked very good in the, the group stage in the second round. And then they got absolutely smashed by Bulgaria in the quarterfinals. And that, that great Stoich Cup performance. So they, they weren't coming off a, you know, a particularly good six years of international football, really, themselves. So it, it did feel like a pretty even game going into it. And it was only really like any psychological scarring that you might have had from 1990 that made you think that maybe England you know, might not do it. But if you looked at it player for player, like they were pretty even teams.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously that got dialed up massively when in that now infamous grey kit, the game kicks off. And before you know it, England are up. It's what, two or three minutes into the game when Alan Shearer puts England into the lead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and then you, you kind of... Um... Well, then it's the Andy Muller show for the next sort of 10 or 15 minutes after that. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting one because this is one of the rare
1: outings for David Platt uh, in the tournament. But he's completely out of position, as I recall.
0: Platt's an interesting player for England, isn't it? Because he basically completely carries the, the Graham Taylor era. Mm. Doesn't the, he, the, like, vo-
1: The first year or so of Terry Vernable's spell, that that honeymoon period, he's the top scorer as well. So he's he's one that, uh, again, the way Gascoigne, his career dies off in the space of about a year. The same thing really happens to David Platt across the course of 94 to 96. That one year period, it's like something goes and you can never quite recapture it.
2: I mean, that late era Platt, even when he was us, he scored a couple of really vital goals, but he don't do much else you know no. and and that's what i think about late era Platt. what he had to his game still was the ability to pop up and score a goal uh, at points but when he were not doing that he wasn't really doing much else so
1: it's yeah. an interest it's an interesting call to put him in a, i think he was a fullback this day because they didn't want to break up the the, the Gascoigne-Ince kind of access and obviously Anderson McManaman were, were, were fairly well established
0: but I don't know if, if Neville was suspended or what but he did pick up a few like hard that tournament Neville's if I recall I mean as he always did <laughs> <laughs> but, mm. but, um, yeah I think it's it, it's it's a really it's a really interesting game because obviously Germany have got their wing backs and funnily enough like you know watching the game back um, you know Samer was usually the one that that, that brought the ball out, but it becomes uh, Thomas Helmer who becomes the kind of you know the centre half who steps out in that game, and he he uh, he sets up um, the goal for Kunz after like some great work from Andy Mola. Um, and so you've got this really interesting kind of thing where the, you've you've got this constant overload on both England's flanks from the uh, the German wing backs getting up and down, um, but then England get quite a lot of joy in that space that the wing backs have vacated
1: well i suppose we mentioned uh gary neville there for a second this uh, given this is nominally about the golden generation i suppose we should point out he's kind of the the first really yeah he is (laughs) um to get a uh, to get cap there are a few that come into the side and uh and under Venables, um, Southgate comes in. I mean, whether or not he's truly golden generation or he's an important figure right the way through to 2003, 2004. Uh, Gary Neville's brother Phil is also in there ahead of much more famous and reputable names as well. But I suppose the other name that comes in during the Venables spell and is a really important player it was Sol Campbell. He was not a starter in this period, but he's he's part of the squad
0: he was brilliant for Spurs in that period of time as well. Like he was absolutely the, yeah, absolutely deserved the place. And again, probably, you know, some people might have thought that was a, a venerable Spurs bias, you know, but, but yeah, he obviously then Campbell in, in 98 would be one of the players of the tournament. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like valuable experience sitting on the bench and watching people like Tony Adams go about their business. Okay. So with,
1: where do we leave it England have just gone one nil up Alan Shearer and then it takes about 10 minutes or so more and and Stefan Kuntz puts in the equalizer and then despite both sides knocking on the door really i said this is my recollection anyways that it's really kind of end to end and there are a lot of chances for both sides and uh the, the the most memorable probably being Gaza
0: just inches away from tapping the ball into an open net but he can't uh, quite make it Anson hits the post as well and that's both an extra time so anderson hits the post and uh and are obviously agonizing and he misses that that sort of shearer um well cross comes shot and then you've also got the trademark anderton sherringham corner routine um where um anderson would whip it to the sort of edge of the box near post and uh, Sheringham would basically try and hit it first time and they do one of those and it gets cleared off the line um scored so many of those it was a great game actually
1: i mean it's obviously tainted for for me i was what was i like, 10 11 years old and i mean i was gutted because i when you're that age you do get caught up in the idea that you're going to win it and it never crosses your mind that, that you can lose until you do and that's devastating yeah i'm sure you've probably got a similar experience from 1990 or whatever but it, 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 that was my my take on it and it was made all the worse by the fact that it went to penalties. I, I and the I, whole
2: country I, was like that in '96. To be fair, I think, yeah. like I say, the fever running <laughs> over the country at that point was yeah. just.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it of, was kind it, of not again. I think <laughs> that was the yeah. thing. It was kind of like, you know, anything, anything but this again. I think Is, was the against the same team too. Yeah. Know. Was
1: it was it worse because no one missed, so the ten penalties all went in. I mean that that seems so in so cruel i mean and when you learn more and more about it as well like southgate wasn't meant to take a penalty but some of the people they were expecting to were just looking away like oh don't give it to me and and gareth was brave enough to say he, he's never taken a penalty in his life i would bet and certainly wasn't villa's penalty taker that would have been dwight york and the fact that he stuck his hand up and said yeah all right and then produces something that shows why he didn't take penalties i mean i it just made it so much worse
0: and we should say as well that that Southgate was was probably England's best player overall in that tournament he was you know he was fantastic um so yeah it was it was a real shame because he was kind of like a one of the, the breakout stars of it too um and it's interesting because when you watch him take the penalty he puts the ball down you know like any experienced penalty takers waits a minute and he puts it down and she just turns around and runs runs and takes it and it's kind of he hadn't even decided where he was going to put it, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that like 1990 that was, that was uh, I think, r- sad and confusing is that obviously Stuart Pearce was one of the best penalty takers in the world at the time, um, and he missed. Uh, and Chris Waddle, again, was a, you know, not a player you expected to miss a penalty. So I think probably that, you know, that was kind of hurtful because it was two regular penalty takers that both missed penalties. Um Whereas, whereas this, yeah, it was it was basically you know, and it would become a theme with England penalty shootouts, really, wouldn't it? Like you know, some some poor central defensive midfielder or centre half gets the ball and and trudges to the penalty spot and and, and misses mm. because yeah. it, because sometimes the England has just taken off all the penalty takers. <laughs>
1: Or, in this case, that they'd, uh, they they bottled it, as uh, as did. I think the person who came out with their reputation most damaged was the so-called governor, as they called him, was Paul Ince, and um, was nowhere to be seen, and then tries to put that right. Well, we'll come to that in a minute. We're, yeah, we're, I'm we're, not sure if,
0: we're not getting sure if ahead Paul Ince was the man that you'd want to take a penalty either, to be honest. No, but he was certainly
1: down as one. Um, <laughs> anyway, so just to like speed this along, obviously we said Terry Venable's, was going to leave after the tournament regardless. The fact we did quite well didn't change that. He felt unsupported by the FA was the official reason given. But we knew going into the tournament that his replacement was going to be Glenn Hoddle. Uh, There were a number of candidates at the time who ruled themselves out while that was all going on. Uh, Kevin Keegan, Jerry Francis, Brian Robson. These were all names in the frame. Uh, If you believe what you read, the FA quietly approached man united about taking alex ferguson which would have been very interesting but they were quietly rebuffed as uh as i'm sure everybody can imagine I, i'm not sure that would have ever happened anyway even if they got past the first first place I'm, I'm trying to imagine
2: fergie in his prime even suggested it to him he would have laughed mm. you out the room
1: wouldn't he yeah yeah. So what it meant uh, was that Hoddle was the. <laughs> I am just trying to think about how Ferguson would have <laughs> reacted now you've said that. He would have laughed you out of the room with uh, without any doubt. But it meant that Hoddle was a fait accompli when the time came. There was no other serious name in the frame. I think a lot of people were underwhelmed in some quarters, but there was also no one else to really point to as, as an alternative. So, so it, there
0: wasn't really a lot of discussion. That was and... my recollection, really. I think. Most people were very excited about Glenn Hoddle. That may mostly, be a... mostly based on the fact that he was obviously such a brilliant player himself, and also the fact that his Chelsea team, you know, were playing progressive football, and you know, it had signed Rid Hullett, um, and 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 you know, like it was kind of felt that he'd done a good job at Swindon. He got them into the Premier League. Then he'd moved on. The Chelsea team that he had were playing nice football. You know, he yeah. put in a sweeper system at Chelsea with and so you know. So I, I think um, that it was there was a lot of optimism around it, and it felt like a continuity choice as well. It felt like you know two managers that had the mm. same philosophy. I mean, this may be a,
1: a regional or even a club thing then, because where I came from, it didn't ever get that sophisticated. There was a lot of Chelsea RA, lower mid-table Premier League side and you've taken a lower mid-table manager was the thing. But what I was just about to say before that is that quickly flipped on its head when England actually started very well under Glenn Hoddle and they only lost one qualifier for the 1998 World Cup, which was away in Italy, which most managers of England would probably say is not a bad game to, to lose, really.
0: Yeah, and the, he brought in the, he, well, I mean, the, the, the major thing he did was he he blooded David Beckham very, very quickly um, in his run. Um, originally as a right wing back, interestingly enough. That's um, yes, when, when everyone was trying a 3-5-2 kind of formation. And know, uh, well, Hoddle stuck to that formation pretty much uh, all the way into 98, actually. And he it very successfully grabbed so on the left. Um, and he, and he, obviously he retained sheer and Sheringham. He by by the sort of Tournoi de France in uh, 1997. He, he he had Paul Scholes, who was the man of that tournament, in to win the Tournoi. Um, and it all looked it all looked very exciting. You know, Sol Campbell gets bedded in. Yeah. Uh, at centre half, fast, strong, never lets you down. Um. The Mexico game was, was, sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to
1: say the Mexico game was quite an important one for betting in players because although neither of them would go on to be iconic first ballot, Hall of Fame, you know, natural members of the golden generation, in 97, not uh, March, the Easter kind of break, I suppose where we are now, uh, but in 97, they played Mexico and he introduced uh, David Beckham, not David Beckham, sorry, David James and Nicky Butt uh, in the same game and they'd obviously feature in certainly the 2002 World Cup and the 2004 Euros. So if you look at the list of players that Glenn Hoddle introduced that are really vital to the second half of
0: this story, it's actually quite a long list. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Nicky Butt played a lot of games for, for Hoddle and for Ericsson, didn't he? Um, and, and, you know, they were, I think that England team, they played some really nice football in the qualifiers. They played, you know, they've had some friendlies where, you know, I think Michael Owen makes his debut in a friendly in the lead up to, to France Let's see. I don't think Owen plays in the qualifiers, but he plays in the friendlies leading up to it and against Chile. And the, oh, with the Marcelo Salas goal! Oh my god. That, that was that was the game. Yeah, you <laughs> I mean yeah, what what a game that was. I mean, uh, we were all talking about Salas for a week after that. Oh my god, that's another one to recreate down the park. And um, yeah, they they the the clamour for Owen not only to go to France but to start was immense as well um to the point where you know um starts the first two group games um against uh tunisia which is straightforward two nil win and against romania where they have a shocker and they lose 2-1 and owen comes off the bench and scores uh, against romania Uh, and then they play colombia basically kind of needing to win to go through and uh and they they very easily won 2-0 at Anston and uh and a Beckham free kick, but Owen starts that game and then of course they go on to start the Argentina game, which obviously it becomes the iconic one. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's
1: got a lot of memories of, of the Argentina game. I just as as we're tracking the golden generation as they come into it, it's worth adding as well that although I'm not sure he played a lot, Rio Ferdinand went to that World Cup.
0: And a Glenn Hoddle, Didn't so play at all, I don't think. Yeah. No, he was he, again. It was like he was the sort very of very young, wasn't he? Yeah, it Bench was Theo Walcott, bench thing, wasn't it? He was like eighteen, I think. Yeah, it was like a bench, mm. you know. Again, experience from the bench, you know. Um, and plus, if you want to play five at the back or three at the back, whichever whichever way you want to look at it, um, it made sense to have a Ferdinand as a backup because he could do that job that Southgate did as a kind of ball playing defender. Mm. He could take it out of defence as well. He? I mean, he had yeah. three, or f-
1: three or four caps by this point. He'd been capped in 1997. Um, I mean, we have fast-forwarded the World Cup. Just before we cycle back to the game, and that's Argentina, I just want to s- quickly touch on the how carried away everyone got with the 0-0 in, in Rome. Because, I, I mean, I, and I'm one of them, that was <laughs> this This was such a, a mature performance, and we should talk about it in those kind of terms. I mean, it's a 0-0 away, but we weren't used to England getting those
0: results necessarily. Ian Wright with the bloody head is kind of what I remember about most about it. I think. Paul, Paul Ince with the bandage. Mm. It was Paul Ince, not really. It was him. Paul Ince, yeah.
1: Um, Ian Wright hit the post, and that's another Yuri Geller one where he claimed that he made Ian Wright miss because he wanted to avoid rioting. Yuri I mean, Geller does, crops that's up that's a
2: lot in
3: this period. That's, that's convenient, isn't it? Mm.
0: Why did people keep giving him a platform? <laughs> <laughs> like, just go away, mate. It was on um, Fancy it football, was before Twitter it? Like, as well. It was um, like Padilla and Skinner started giving him a little slot where he'd sort of say, like, think of the colour orange and England will win and stuff like that. Yeah, put your hand on
1: the
3: screen and say England win. That's the one I remember. That was before the Spain game. I mean, it's. I think it's worth talking about Hoddle in, in the build-up to this because I think that there were cracks beginning to appear um, in, if not his relationship with the public, but his relationship with the squad. Um, particularly around the, the the squad announcement, but also that there, there were things like the Eileen Drury thing that came um, a bit later. Yeah, but... It, 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 but she was around the squad already at this point. Yeah, although it and it, it was thrown back in Hoddle's face when it when it came to when it came to time to get rid of him. Um, but he 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 used Eileen. Drury, She was a faith healer, and uh, she had helped Hoddle himself quite a bit during his career. Um. And I think there's a bit of a mixed opinion about what, how, how useful she was to the squad, I think. Um, but the other thing was that Hoddle ostracised a number of players because of how they reacted to her. Ray Parler was one of them. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm
2: <sure>. picturing <laughs> Ray Parlour reacting
3: to a faith healer. I mean, apparently, Apparently. That should be um, on pay-per-view. <laughs> the story goes that apparently Ray Parler went to see her and asked for short back and sides. Um <laughs> which um which, which yeah saw, saw him sort of uh, also, I mean um the likes of Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman weren't fans either and you know, they weren't really huge parts of of, of Hoddle's setup um compared to what you think they might be and um
1: Can you imagine uh, scouse working class lads coming across a faith healer titans how they're going to react i
2: mean i, I imagine ray parlor at this time should have been a shooing for that squad if especially if you're toying with a with a you know a right sided player that can go forward and go back you know he'd be the perfect backup well, to
3: gary Leffel at that point particularly yeah. as he as hoddle seemed to have a little bit of he had a few question marks over beckham um,
0: well the, the his, beckham his, one is really interesting, interesting.
3: Yeah, it, it, I been sort of reading up on this beforehand and um, a lot of the criticisms of Hoddle and his man management style were not so much about what he said, but more about how he said them. Um, and the, the, the squad announcement was done basically where all the players and there was a, there was a 28 man uh, training group, basically, and he would see them one by one for sort of five minute conversations because he wanted to tell them man to man whether or not they were on the plane or not. Um, and kind of word had gotten out early that Gascoigne wasn't going, um, which he didn't react especially well to, it as you can probably imagine, yeah. and he went mental about it. But um, when it came I, to sort of when it came when it came to he, he dropped Beckham for the first certainly the first game was it the first two games? I def- I think, definitely the first one. I can't remember called, the second one or not. And called into question his focus and things like that. But he'd also put people up for press conferences where they were. He knew they were going to be asked about what had been said. And um, Beckham was one of those players. And you, you're talking about a 23-year-old bloke who's all he wants to do is play football, really. Um, and he's been he's been set up to he's been put up in front of the, the press and 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 fed to them basically. The same thing happened to Gareth Southgate when he was he basically had to lie to. The press about his injury from the first game um, and then it came out that he was um that, that he was injured and it's never really quite clear why he he had to do that other than hoddle wanting to exert some sort of influence over them it was it was it was all a bit strange he had, I mean, the,
2: well, the, gaza, the gaza thing was a big thing as well Gaz, gaza not getting dropped and strangely enough when you consider his england cree even rightly not making it because he was probably you know, in the lead up to that tournament, he probably played his best international
3: football. Wasn't he? Injured? Wasn't he carrying an injury? He, he carried an injury at the back end of that season for Arsenal. Um, that will become a that will become a theme we we pick up on later on, I'm sure. But yeah, um, players going into tournaments injured, but um, the fact that they took Rio Ferdinand to a tournament with no intention to play him, but left Paul Gascoigne on at home is. You know, there's obviously the, there were reasons behind it. And these yeah. days, if, if Gascoigne did what he did, he wouldn't have even been near the squad. Um But it was it was a different time. And yeah. those these sort were of the things... players that the press would always get behind because, yeah, you yeah. know, these were players that could
2: could turn a match uh, at any point, you know. And we had a lot of those coming through at this point, but a lot of them were unproven at this point. So at this point, you know, it was... It, it, it was there, Gascoigne was there, you know, Righty, as much as his track records, you know, showed he didn't really do that for England, had that ability, and, you know, the, the funny thing is, it was Paul Merson that got on the plane, yeah, and I love the Mers, don't get me wrong, but, you know, he, he, he
0: plays very,
3: he's he been playing in, in Division 1,
0: he plays really, I mean, to be fair, playing he really very, well. Well, yeah. playing very I, well, I think, Division. it should be said, actually, that Gascoigne, didn't make the squad on very valid footballing reasons. Um, yeah. he, 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 he was not the Paul Gascoigne of two years before. And I, I think that's important to say. Who would you have left shock, out for him? I wouldn't have left anyone out for him. I wouldn't have taken exactly, it. Um, exactly. But the one that I think people were a little bit disappointed about, because, because when Hoddle first came in, I think it was felt that finally Matt Latissier would get a fair go in the England team. People kind of thought, you know, well, if anyone can understand a player like Matt LaSissier, it would be Glenn Hoddle. Because, of course, Glenn Hoddle's own England career, he had 50 odd caps. But Bobby Robson never trusted him to do what he did for Spurs and to make him the main man because he trusted Brian Robson. And Brian Robson was the, you know, what that England team were built around. And Glenn Hoddle, who was a far more talented footballer, never quite got a fair go for England in that sense. And I think people felt that, well, you know, having been labelled a luxury player and he doesn't run enough and all that sort of stuff. In his own England career, they kind of felt like he might give Latisse a chance. And then Latisse kind of makes a few of Hosel's squads, but he doesn't he doesn't go to France. And I think people were quite disappointed about that. And I think you could probably say, you know, maybe you could have had Latisse over Merson, I don't know. But it's it's an interesting one because if you look at Matt Latissier's career, uh, you know, it's absurd that he's got, you know, a kind of I think a single digit amount of England caps. Um, you know, probably should have Probably should have declared for France or something, shouldn't he? <laughs> um but but yeah, because they could have done with a goal scorer at that particular time. But um yeah, I think that that was the thing. And then the Beckham one
1: Well I I've very... So I was gonna say I've sussed out what happened with Beckham, if that um helps to uh to, to kind of get us back to, to the games, which was and it sort of explains the Ferdinand thing in a bit because when Beckham comes back into the side, it looks like he's replacing David Batty, which is he comes on as a substitute in the the second
0: midfield because Anderson
1: played the right wing back. Yes. So he comes on as a substitute in the second game for Paul Ince. But then obviously Ince is, you know, one of the first names on the team sheet. So it's Batty who has to give way for Beckham. So it looks like Ferdinand was probably brought in on the understanding that he could have played both centre back and defensive midfielder. And we have two centre backs and two defensive midfielders. And that's a lot of positions that need covering. Obviously, when Beckham starts to go on and England suddenly look a, a quite a lot better with uh, only one defensive midfielder and two players with a little more creativity in the midfield, suddenly Ferdinand looks like, uh, you know, a, a, a luxury a Theo Walcott pick, as someone said earlier on. Uh, so, yeah, Beckham comes in for Ince and then takes over fr- from Batty. And uh,
0: sorry, I interrupted you. You're going to uh, say something, but probably about his relationship with Hoddle. Yeah, it's a very famous story. Um I don't know if you've heard this one, but but there was an England training session where yeah, he wanted he wanted uh, Beckham to uh, to do a certain a certain type of free kick or a certain pass, um, and Beckham like, had about twenty attempts and couldn't do it. And Huddle stepped up and did it first time and said, "There you go, that's how you do it." And turned his back on him. <laughs> like, Man management, it's, it's that, but it's that sort of thing where players who are great themselves don't always make the best managers. Um because, you know, they're kind of I mean, you, you I mean, there was I don't know if you watched that Thierry Henry video, um, where he was on, <laughs> on the sidelines of Montreal Impact and he basically spends the whole game telling them all their shit. <laughs> <Like> it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's like just um, unbelievable to listen but to. true, sure, they
3: can't deal with the fact that players can't do what they can do exactly. And, and Glenn, Glenn Hoddle at the age of forty was still probably the most technically gifted footballer in that England party.
0: Yeah. and, and I think With
3: perhaps the exception of Paul Scholes. Um, but, and even then it was probably close, but it, it, it doesn't work like that. And what Venables got right was that ability to, to, to let, almost let players be themselves a little bit. And sure, you've got, you've got incidents like the, the Cathay Pacific um, incident and the, the dentist chair and things like that. Um and, but at the time that was commonplace in most international squads um things
0: like that um it was just boys on tour wasn't it it's experience um, isn't it as a manager right yeah. you know like glenn you know, terry venables had been a, a football manager for you know uh 20 plus years at the point where he took the england job glenn hoswell been a football manager for two three mm. you know it, that's not a the massively successful but... one yeah,
1: I've got to jump in because we've been going almost an hour. We've still got another tournament to fit into this episode before we move on. And we haven't even actually really got to Argentina 2, England 2. And what a memorable game it really is. And, and I suppose um, coming off Beckham, I mean, it's a it's a perfect time to transition because uh, this is the game that for the next 18 months makes him public enemy number one in England. But the red cards made him a what player. player. It what it a game, it, though. Yeah, I mean, what, uh, it's a great game, and as uh, along with the red card for for David Beckham, which comes a minute into the second half, so England get a two all draw despite playing with ten men for for basically the entire second half. The other thing that everyone remembers is is Michael Owen's goal. Just uh, you know, everyone jump in on that, or you can also jump in on the fact that we had two penalties in the first ten minutes. I mean, it's just a a
0: crazy night, wasn't it? Owen I mean, just absolutely rips that argentina defense to shreds didn't he like he absolutely like they were terrified of him every time he got the ball they just backed off him backed off him um doesn't he win the penalty he wins the penalty right um and then he he scores his wonder goal um i mean and i think again people forget because of what happens like later on and how how the injuries affected him i think people sometimes forget michael owen was like as a As a teenager you know and those those players that just have that sort of searing pace like I watched a compilation the other day of Fernando Torres at Liverpool, and it was similar you know it's like mm. they're so good for that short space of time before the hamstrings go um and you know Owen as an eighteen year old was just he just terrified people and oh, he- I, what you
2: need to understand is that the hype that was surrounding him as well and not I'm not talking about British tabloid hype which you know we're very much used to I'm talking about you know European papers were, were were touting him as the next Ronaldo at this stage you know based on that goal and that performance and just what he had about him and to
3: be fair it, it you know it was it wasn't a stretch i got a very dim view of Michael Owen <laughs> <laughs> I wonder when this will come up um, you can save it for but, 2006 Joe. but I will but I will say this I mean for, for all the things that Owen um, was not for Newcastle from 2005 onwards I don't think any player in the history of a game in the history of the game has made that much of an impact um, on an international tournament at that sort of age, like he, he, he was—he was a superstar overnight. Like he was suddenly one of the most feared strikers in the world, based on what he did to that Argentine defense. Dapé yeah.
0: well, um, in in
3: eighteen, you'd probably say runs it's, in place. It's com- yeah. yeah, it's comparable, but yeah, Pele um,
0: fifty-eight.
3: Oh
0: yeah, well there is that. I mean, <laughs> Mar- I know Mar- we're, right. we're
3: all. <laughs> <Yeah. wrong. laughs> But but you know what I mean. Like if, if for our generation, I can't think of any player who made that sort of an impact on a on a on a global tournament at that sort of age. Um, and it was one of those moments that made you think, this is going to be our night. This is going to be our year. You know, that was that's what it did. And then for for what happened, obviously Beckham to do what he did, did it lose us the game? I, I don't know if it did. But we didn't uh,
0: lose us the game. Uh, I think that's. I think that's the I mean, biggest. We were news. in. Too we old.
3: were in the game all the way through, and you know, for, I think Argentina were fortuitous to get it to penalties. I mean, eleven, I, I 11 think, against eleven,
0: gets, we would have won that comfortably. Obviously. Yeah, and, and Campbell didn't Campbell have a header to Yeah,
3: he did, and uh, it was.
0: Uh, it was a good header
3: as well. I, I, I think know, it, Shear, Shearer's elbow was. Uh, was in play. I mean, Shira's elbow, as, as it, elbow and, things, as it often was. And for was. once, it got it got what it deserved. Um, the the one time um, you didn't want it to. But you're talk, I mean, we're talking about you know, this is one of the great English defensive performances in in competition history. It was, you know, the, the, they all worked so hard for for, for two hours, um, and yeah, I mean. Would would they would they have worked as hard? As they, would they have been as switched on as they were? Were it not for Beckham's red card, we'll never know. Um, you
0: should probably it, say as an aside that uh, that Simeone's um, dark arts. I mean, you have to give it to him, to be honest, don't you? He knew exactly what he was doing. And he admitted <laughs> it Absolute, absolute genius. I mean, that is. I mean, and th- then he goes and basically creates a, a team in his image uh, in Atletico <laughs> that-, that basically do the same thing for like the next place. Like, oh, and you. he had a
2: strike force of Luis Suarez and Diego Costa for a few minutes this season. I mean, <laughs> let that
1: sink in. Uh, I, I always <laughs> forget
2: how Please, much
3: sh-
1: how much Neil does enjoy a bit of shit out of always, Oh my god! I, love it. I mean, I always forget, but. Uh... So anyway, England uh, crash out after another penalty shooter. This seems to be the the pattern of this this early period. Um, Paul Ince, having probably I imagine being a little bit shamed by his failure to take one in in 1996, steps up second after Alan Shearer and misses. But this is sort of irrelevant because weirdly, Hernan Crespo misses for Argentina, and then the poor obvious non-taker who steps up is David Batty. Will score? The, yeah, this is the infamous Willie score, yes, um, between Brian Moore and Kevin Keegan. The, the ultimate irony being that David Beckham was clearly going to be one of the penalty takers if if they ever came around to it and he'd been sent off so uh yeah england crash out and argentina don't go much further um the 120 minutes seems to take it out of their legs and they uh get beaten in the next round in what i've if, if i'm remembering right was a classic game uh but anyway we, we're focusing on england we'll probably do a deep dive into some of these tournaments later on uh well,
3: that's something think, interesting about that david batty penalty mess there, there, there are some players who sort of there was somebody who said that they were glad it was. If you were going to give, if you are going to, if you wanted to wish that anyone missed a penalty, it would be David Batty, because <laughs> he didn't care. He didn't carry it with him. Like okay. I think he's he's sort of famously he he's he's not he like football. David Batty. He just happened to be really good at it. He didn't, um, he didn't play like what, somebody liked football either. No, no, like, exactly. So <laughs> he he's that generation's Benoit assou Oh my god. Something like that. He's not give basically, me of that guy. He's that, He's that bloke who just sort of falls into a job. And for most people, it's just sitting on this working for Tesco or something like that. And suddenly you've been there 10 years. He just happened to go to Leeds United. Um, but but even in his autobiography, he said like he's not lost a minute's sleep over it. He just, it was just one of those things.
0: He, he didn't look like it at the time. He walked around well. Yeah, fair play, fair play oh, yeah. to Joe well, yeah. for reading David Bath's autobiography. Like yeah, oh no, I, no, I didn't. I, I, <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> say that's, that that's taking one for the team. I mean, or, I mean, that, that coming from someone that's read Peter Redstiles, mind you. Yeah, I mean, I, we would we would <laughs> even doing this then. I mean, I mean, I've, I've got no one to
1: blame. I just was kind of interested, I guess. But you uh, you know, uh, once again,
2: David Bat he stood up to take it, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I'm never gonna go, you know. I'm never gonna criticise someone who. who is in that position that has got the balls to say, yeah, right, give it to me, when players who would be
3: better placed to take it uh, are going off and hiding. You know, Much more respect for that than actually doing it, even though you thought, do you know what, I'm probably going to miss, than doing what Paul Ince did in 96.
2: Before we goes, move on, can I just shout out to Gabriel Batistuta's head nod when the red card comes out?
3: <laughs> I mean,
2: that is, that, that's vintage. It's just like, yep. Yeah.
0: i mean i think probably we should also say before we move on that we've kind of completely skipped over what we talked about in the diego maradona episode which was you know the obvious england v argentina rivalry over you know all of those years you know from nineteen six from the 1960s quarter final all the way
1: i tell you what then we'll touch on that when we come to 2002 because we'll yeah. have more, more time to expand on it and, and really do it justice there. Uh, I am going to move us on now because obviously England go out in the second round and it's a wonderful second half of that World Cup 98, but it's irrelevant to England because they've they've gone home by this point. And there's a, there's a bit of a hangover for Glenn Hollow's team. They, they lose in the first qualifier for Euro 2000 and Paul Ince is sent off. So it's really not a good year for Paul Ince in an England shirt. And then they go and draw it home to Bulgaria. And, and by this point, Bulgaria had been a great side, but, they were an ageing team, and to draw at Wembley was was a bit of a disappointment. They do get back to winning ways with a win at Luxembourg, which uh, yeah, I was going to say was a, a, almost a guaranteed thing, but then obviously <laughs> Ireland, as as it looks Ireland no, have made not, it a little bit either. more um, bit more difficult, and and they win a friendly over the Czech Republic, who were the uh, Euro '96 runners-up, but. Then um, things come off, and this is where you talked about Eileen Jury earlier on because Glenn Hoddle has
0: to resign because he. I, I mean, I'm trying to remember what the He's, gist of it was. Basically, here. he said that disabled people uh, had done something in a previous life that, that, that led to them having. Yeah. It's basically, he, he suggested it was karma that, that Yeah. a previous life that disabled people were disabled. It's Even if you
1: you hold the view If you're the England football manager It's an incredibly stupid thing to say uh, In the press So the long and short of it is Glenn Hoddle has to resign Howard Wilkinson takes the, the side For a friendly game against France I, I can't remember what, how it turned out You know, friendly games are Something or nothing As far as I'm concerned for England
0: uh, and... I think that's when Nicholas Nelka Played it in goalie gloves <laughs> you know like when players wear gloves <laughs> that is and could play the whole
3: game in goalie gloves that is, that is, that is a detail <laughs>
1: <laughs> but anyway the point I was going to make is that the uh, next appointment is, is a really interesting one because while the appointment from the move from Venables to Hoddle as you said earlier on Neil and I think you're absolutely right I've written exactly the same thing down in my notes Is it's a continuity appointment you can see the, the thinking and the progression and, and so on and this. It's harder to, hard to imagine a more obvious pivot than from Hoddle to Keegan. I mean, this is a man who came out in the aftermath of that scandal with Glenn Hoddle and said, I don't need a faith healer. I just need what everyone else wants the players to do. I want them to sing the anthem. And Thank that's God. that's Kevin Keegan's management
3: philosophy in a he's, nutshell. He's always he has always been a populist appointment.
0: I think to be fair to Keegan and I will, will obviously be brief on Keegan's reign because it doesn't last very long and it isn't very good but um, he does get England's two euro 2000, and it, it's not a particularly easy path like they have to go and play Scotland in a qualifier like you know those kind of games you play because you both finish second in your group um, the, the playoffs yeah yeah it's a two-legged affair um, and Paul Scholes um, it's kind of the height of Paul Scholes scoring a lot of goals for England it's you know I wrote on Twitter earlier on it's like he scores goals era Paul Scholes where he's bombing in the box and scoring like absolute you know piles of goals for Man United and the same for England and then of course his his role changes slightly and and um you know the kind of goals dry up a little bit obviously well, still, but- still a brilliant player but but kind of just in a different way but he you know the England get to year 96 uh, sorry year 2000s and um, obviously, then it 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 goes kind of drastically wrong. But he does get them there, and it wasn't a yeah. given at the point where he took over. Those playoffs were huge games. I mean, we shouldn't gloss over just how big
1: they were because, I mean, just to just to recap it quickly, England come in, uh, Keegan comes into to England, and they get a win away in a win in Poland and a away draw in Hungary, and those points all start to look really massive all of a sudden because all we're only drawing against most sides with we, we thrash Luxembourg and eventually we get a kind of draw with Poland. But when we had nine, ten points off Sweden who qualify automatically, you know, we are only a through the playoff quality team. There's no guarantee that over two legs you can beat Scotland. And actually, the final result is 2-1 on aggregate. But that first game at Hampden Park, as you say, Paul's goals just turns up in a way that very few other players do. And uh, the whole country was watching because... For England not to have qualified, as we know from the Taylor and uh, era, you know, not to qualify is, is the kiss of death for a manager. And, um, you know, there was this weird sense after '98 that we'd been unlucky against Argentina and who knows how far we could have gone. And look how great Michael Owen is. And all these kind of, I'm not going to call them lies, but all right, these lies that we tell ourselves about that we're better than we are. And that would have all come crashing down if we hadn't made it to the next tournament. And that's just how much was riding on that England-Scotland game. And there's a point, I don't even know if it was 0-0 at the time, where I think Billy Dodds hits the bar. You know, oh, these, I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, these these were important games and interesting games, and the eyes of not just England, but of all of Britain were on, on these two games.
0: I remember watching them in uh, the kitchen of my student house, in Exeter, like, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, sort of six of us sat around this 12 inch TV, uh, you know, kind of nervously nervous sort of, you know, cans of Fosters in hand, you know, kind of <laughs> watching this game. And, and yeah, Paul skull is just absolutely popping up where he was most needed.
1: And people forget that Scotland throughout this whole period, you know, we've talked about them in 96 and 2000 now, they obviously went to the 98 World Cup. Scotland have come back to being a half-decent team in the last couple of years, mainly around John McGinn, I think. I would think that, but... <laughs> Andy <laughs> Robertson, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, who's he? Um, anyway, <laughs> the the point is that for a long time Scotland were not... Kieran, re- bloody teary, shut up. <laughs> The point is that for a long time Scotland were not brilliant and people forget that actually in the 1990s the gap between England and Scotland was not as great as you may have subsequently come to expect it to be. So it it wasn't a foregone conclusion so England got through I think as I say they lost at Wembley which got glossed over quite a lot and we started focusing on oh we didn't lose to Brazil in the warm-up games and then we had a
0: bit of a rude awakening when it came to Euro 2000 as a result. Yeah, what a, I mean, the funny enough that that tournament started really well in the sense that you know two up on Portugal <laughs> within what within half an hour of that game kicking 15 off. Minutes, it was pretty pretty early, wasn't it? And, and it, was it skulls again? Yeah. Um, and then Luis Figo takes the game over, like, and I think that was our first taste of Figo as the best player of you know one of the best players in the world. Like, it was basically him and Zidane were the you know the heralded players that. Of, of of the era and I, I don't know if i'd watched that much Luis vigo before that tournament actually i couldn't think how many barcelona games i might have seen but he absolutely just suddenly um took that game by the scruff of the neck as great players do and before you knew it portugal were three two up there were heavy favorites
1: going in it's worth remembering so the fact we were two nil up was was a bit of a surprise in itself it, it was a group of death, wasn't it? Let's face it. But, you know, the,
2: the, the two powerhouses just really came in for a rude awakening in that one.
1: I suppose uh, we can say, because uh, uh, we don't need to spend too much time on year 2000, uh, really. Oh, uh, just no. <laughs> j- just for the sake of our own. <laughs> no. it's, it was, I mean, it's a great tournament, but for, for England's perspective, I mean, we're all going to be driven to drink. So uh, we'll even gloss over the fact that we finally got revenge. In uh, I hope you can hear my massive inverted commas around the word. Uh, over Germany in the second game, where an Alan Shearer goal won us possibly the worst game of football ever played.
3: Um, I mean, there's there's another game with Germany we can spend time on. Let's let's yeah, let's move yeah. past that one.
1: So <laughs> so I mean, the, the, the crucial thing is we all we always seem to need a villain, and you know Gareth Southgate might be the most unfortunate villain. Beckham, he didn't bring the level of appropriate he I mean, received on himself, but I mean he did kick out, so it's sort of prompting. Phil Neville becomes. He deserved what he that, got. Yeah, no, no, of course he didn't. But Phil Neville becomes the man in this instance because he gives away the penalty that is the deciding goal that puts England out against Romania. My, and I quite what... a
0: poor Romania team as well compared to like mm. the 1990s vintage. Yeah. But isn't
1: it is it not also fair to say even though they were quite a poor team, it was coming?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what you saw with Keegan England was what you saw with, you know, with, with Keegan at, at Newcastle and at Man City and you know, everywhere that he's been, which is that, you know, although they can play some quite thrilling, fast-paced English football, you know, defensively, they will, they will it's going to be suspect, you know. And and I think, you know, having a 2-0 lead against, against Portugal and literally throwing it in the bin is like the most Keegan thing you can possibly do, isn't it? I
2: mean you know, you can't even bemoan the quality of defenders, can you? You know, you had you had good defenders at that point.
1: Yeah, we you certainly know. did.
2: Campbell Adams, the Nevilles, you know, these are players that wouldn't do that for their club.
1: No, I mean this is a tactical thing that's coming from the management and, and we were so open. I it think was that's 4, four no, two, was, four, no two tactics, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was, was four four two 4 two.
3: Yeah, and,
0: and, and someone's it
1: to
3: Mike Bassett over there, I can tell. But, that, but that's what it, that's 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 all Keegan had. And, it and it say, all yeah. it was 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 firing people up and saying we're better than them. Go and there, go and get them. And, and for a couple of years at Newcastle, it worked. Yeah, that, yeah, there was. And you know, and we, and we did. Yeah, you know, we had, did have some good players. And you think, you know, Kevin Keegan with Paul Scholes in his team, they're going to score hatfuls, but. There, was, there wasn't much more to it than that. And, you know, and at an international level, that gets found out really quickly. Because teams all teams have to do is focus on getting past the next team in front of them. And England were one of the most transparent teams in terms of how they set up and how they were going to play. And sure, you know, they might score a few goals. They always like to score a few goals, but there's going to be bags of opportunity to, to exploit them as well. Yeah. Um, I think I think I the mean, fact that they it.
0: didn't shut up shop when they were two 0 up, you know, like that just it's shows you, doesn't
3: it? But it's not the it's never been the Keegan way. He doesn't know how to shut up Shop. I, I mean that's it's the one problem. thing it's one
2: thing to get torn apart by Luis Figo in his absolute yeah, pride. You know. But you know, getting torn apart by a thirty five year old George Hadji, you know, shouldn't have been happening. A, as
0: player, great as,
2: as he was. <laughs> what a player he was. As yeah. great as he was at 35 years of age, you know, without Dmitrescu and you know a, a few of those other players around him, it, as was said, it wasn't a vintage, uh, it wasn't a vintage Romania team. But uh, you know, they they put England and
0: Germany out. That year, yeah. I mean, Germany, of course, were playing Germany were like a, even worse. A 41 year old Lerth Mateus against against Luis Vigo and Nuno Gomez and you know, Jao Pinto. So that didn't yeah. work out so well. Yeah, the difference between England and
1: Germany is Germany recovered to spot what was wrong and within a couple of years put in place the the system that would win them the 2014 World Cup, whereas England. I mean, I think the fact they lost two of those games, 3-2, is the ultimate epitaph of the Kevin Keegan regime. But it did limp on because he hadn't been manager for that long and we weren't sack happy in, in those days. So he actually managed to, to carry on beyond the Euros despite going out in the group stage, which is not something that I think would happen for everybody nowadays. Anyway, uh, his last two games after the Euros were... Against the the team who gone to win that tournament, France in what was a draw instead of France, which looks remarkably creditable in hindsight. But the game after that was competitive, and that's where the problems came in because after one of the worst showings that anyone can recall in international football ever, in a, the first qualifier of the 2002 World Cup, Dietmar Hamann gave Germany a one nil win at Wembley. It's the last game played at the old Wembley, and in the the tunnel. Uh, after the game, Kevin Keegan resigned, saying the job was too big for him.
0: I think not, that not just in the tunnel, in the, in a toilet, in a toilet. Well, he was well, the legend is is that it was in a toilet in the old Wembley, like before they knocked it down. Well, I think that's actually the perfect place to
1: to, to, to actually bring this to an end. Um, <laughs> Kevin we, Keegan in the toilet. <laughs> I think we we'll this. We will pick this one back up with Kevin Keegan in the toilet. At the start of our next episode. So uh, join in next week. We'll be looking at where the golden generation goes from this low point of losing in the last game of the old Wembley. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. Do come back next week. See you soon.
3: If you enjoyed this week's show, you can find more of us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or your regular podcast provider. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. You can keep up with us on Twitter, at 4ATBpod. Thanks for listening.